Well, it is Christmas time, if not quite yet, Christmas Day. And it's supposed to be a time, so we're told, through songs and television and advertisements, to be jolly and merry and bright, isn't it? Christmas time is a time when apparently everything is okay and life is as it should be. Families are together celebrating houses and public buildings and town centres look beautiful and yet sorry to bring the mood down but we're more aware aren't we than ever of the brokenness of our world it doesn't matter how many christmas lights we put up it doesn't matter how many servings of christmas dinner i enjoyed last night we know that we live in great darkness and that isn't because the world is any darker than it has been some people will tell you well look at this look at that isn't everything getting worse wasn't it much better 10 years ago 50 years ago 100 years ago no history shows us that the world has been a dark place for a very long time actually we're more aware than ever of the brokenness and the darkness of our world because we have these means mine's on the floor there little device which beams into our lives, into our existence, not just the brokenness and the darkness that we experience, or our families and our friends and our communities, but it beams into our existence tragedies on a global level. We know that the world is a broken place, a place which is dangerous to live in. A world that damages those who live in it. Fighting, sickness, uh, fallings out and things like that are experienced at this time of year. And part of our culture, part of our society's answer to that brokenness, to that darkness, is to take a time of year like Christmas and try to use that to pretend that everything is okay. To pretend that everything is basically fine and that there is no problem. And quite often we can buy into that as well. We can muddle along through life and talk about Christmas and make our plans and have our feasts and open our presents. And it seems like the best place to exist and then out of the blue tragedy strikes. I'm not one for watching the news, but I've heard recently that there was an explosion and a fire somewhere uh, nearby, Trafalgar, I think it was, and somebody lost their lives. Uh, On the way to church this evening, I called in with a member of our church who is sick in hospital and will most likely not see Christmas Day. It doesn't matter how much we dress up the Christmas tree We have to, at some point, encounter the pain of living in this world. And here's the thing, that when we encounter the brokenness, when the darkness is right before us, it forces us to ask the question, earnestly ask the question, where are you, God? Because we have this sense, don't we? Of God as being a good God, of God as being a kind God, a loving God, a powerful God. A God who, if he is near us, wouldn't 
dare allow the sorts of things that happen to us and our loved ones and our neighbours and our nations and our world to happen. So when the darkness pierces the light, when the brokenness cuts us, we ask that same old question that has been asked throughout the ages, where are you, God? Matthew chapter 1, or all of Matthew really, is one follower of Jesus' attempt to answer that question. Uh, I didn't read to you uh, the verses before verses 18. Some people might think it's because, you know, that's boring. It's a long, long list of names. Um, It's more to do with the fact that I will probably embarrass myself trying to pronounce some of those names. But the story of Jesus is introduced to us as a story of someone who comes from a long line of broken people. And and, and one of the, the ways that Matthew extends hope into our brokenness, or one of the ways that Matthew shines light into our darkness is to help us to see that when Jesus came, he came as a man. There are two things that I'm going to extend to us to encourage us this evening if and when we cry out and ask that question, where are you God? The first is that Matthew helps us to see that Jesus is so very much like us. And the second is that Matthew helps us to see that Jesus is so very much unlike us. This is not a story of some superman figure. We can conceive of uh, a way of salvation where God would click his fingers and Jesus would appear out of thin air. That someone might come and look like us but be entirely different. You know Superman? Superman looked so much like the people he rubbed shoulders with but he wasn't really like them at all. He was impenetrable to things like bullets and and swords and, 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 and the sicknesses that we encounter and that we suffer from. The story that we read in Matthew, the story that is laid out with this genealogy and then reaches its culmination with this visitation of an angel with Joseph um, encouraging him to take Mary as his wife and to, to be Jesus' father helps us to see that this is the story of a God who comes in flesh not the story of some superman figure who is impenetrable but the incarnation as we've called it the emmanueling of god the god being with us just think how wonderful this is elsewhere in the scriptures we're encouraged to think of the son the eternal son as being the one who is utterly sufficient ever existing through whom and for whom all things were made that everything we see everything we know everything that we understand exists only because he has brought it into existence and continues to hold on to its existence Ponder this truth that is shared here with Matthew when he speaks about a baby being conceived in Mary. 
that that same son became dependent on others. Jesus is like us in that he utterly depended on others. We don't like that idea as people, do we? We don't like that idea of us being folks who require others to help and to sacrifice and to invest in us. Sometimes we can describe um, a negative sense of life like this, that we don't want to be a burden on others. And yet that is to deny something of our humanity. Think back to the beginning, to the garden, and in all of God's glorious creation, human or a human on their own is the only thing that God declares not good. It is not good, God says, for man to be alone, and so a helper is found. You might even explain uh, the fall as mankind's attempt to distance themselves from God and say, we are independent of you. We don't need you. We don't need your rules. We don't need your wisdom. But the truth is, to be human is to be dependent. To be dependent on God, the Father, and to be dependent on one another. This is the time of year when folks will buy each other questionable Christmas presents um, and one of the things that will fill the shops and therefore fill uh, the space under our trees are autobiographies. Uh, Autobiographies that just so happen to come out in time for Christmas season when someone who's desperate to buy a present can go and grab something, wrap it up quickly and give it away. And there are many autobiographies out there of the inverted commas self-made millionaire businessmen, businesswomen who have bucked the trend and have somehow made something of themselves, created some business empire, and guess what? They didn't need anybody else's help. No government handouts, no tax cuts, no tax breaks, no investments from foreign investors, just hard work, just good business sense, just grabbing themselves by the bootstraps and dragging themselves up, and they've made it. Lots and lots of autobiographies on that nature. And yet, every single one of those stories is a lie, isn't it? Every single one of those stories is a lie. Because every single business depends on customers. Can't make money unless you've got something to sell and someone to sell it to. Those folks who say that they've never had a handout from the government have quite happily used the road networks that have been built and the telecommunications networks and the electrical networks and the grid and things like that. Not to mention the fact that they didn't just appear as bright-eyed, bushy-tailed 18-year-olds with an idea, but they depended on parents and family and friends and teachers to raise them and to teach them and to provide for them. To be an independent person is an oxymoron. We are all built into our very nature burdens on one another and that is not a bad thing. And here we have Matthew telling the story of Jesus as someone who came and was utterly dependent. Did you hear that? Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will give birth to a son and you, to, you are to give him the name Jesus. Jesus, for nine months, was in his mother's womb, totally and utterly dependent on her. A burden to her. We know, don't we, from um, modern medicine, uh, ultrasound scans, whatever, various things that they do, that what happens to the mother affects greatly the child in the womb. That if a mother is malnourished, then the child will be malnourished. If the mother is a smoker or a drinker or something like that, it will have its impact and its effect. Because the baby is utterly dependent on the mother. And that dependence of Jesus didn't finish the moment that he was born either. But we can imagine, can't we, that he continued to be dependent on Mary and Joseph and close family and friends and the neighborhood as he grew physically from that little babe suckling at his mother's breast into a young man, even to a middle-aged man. There's a, an interesting note in Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, which speaks about this group of women who, out of their own pocket, saw to it that Jesus and the disciples were provided for. He was dependent on other people. Even when you think about the story of Jesus heading to the cross, Simon of Cyrene was dragged into the whole drama of what was going on. Here was Simon, he'd come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and required to carry Jesus' cross to Golgotha. Even when Jesus had died, even when Jesus died, he depended on Joseph of Arimathea to take him down and to place him in his own tomb. From start, here in Matthew's Gospel, to finish, we see that Jesus' life was a life of depending on others. That is not to mention his depending on the Father and the Spirit throughout his life. Jesus was so like us. More like that, more than that. He was, he was like us in the sense of him being a fragile person. Another part of our humanity is that we suffer the effects of living in this broken world. We hunger, we thirst, we weep, we cry, we bleed. All these things we see in Jesus' life. Jesus was hungry. Jesus was thirsty. He, he, he felt the effects of the fall physically and relationally as people rejected him, as people um, abandoned him, as his own family questioned his sanity. When Jesus was pierced in his side, he bled. The story of Jesus' birth that Mary conceived a son, that she gave birth to Jesus, shows us that he was so much like us. And there is that old adage, isn't there, that misery loves company. And so perhaps what Matthew is getting at here, the story of Jesus, is a comfort to us because it means that Jesus has experienced the same level of brokenness that we experience. 
that when we cry out in that accusative tone, God, where are you? He can say, well, I'm right by you. I'm right with you through it all. This is not something that is just for you, but it's something that I go through as well. And yet, that's not the whole story, is it? If that was the whole story, then probably we wouldn't act it out every year. We wouldn't write special books about it. We wouldn't sing about it. We wouldn't celebrate it. We wouldn't have Matthew chapter 1 that there was this young lass who had a son and he was normal like the rest of us. Wrapped up in this story is the fact that as much as he was like us, he is utterly unlike us as well. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Luke also has a genealogy of Jesus, and in some senses, so does John's gospel. John's gospel puts the genealogy of Jesus like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And God took on flesh and came to live amongst us. From eternity to earth. Some folks have made the mistake of denying the humanity of Jesus. But let us not make the mistake of thinking that he is merely a man like you or I. He is a man, but he is no mere man. Just as we can consider his life and see how very similar he is, we we can consider his life and see how utterly different he is. Jesus became fragile in the flesh. He felt the effects of the curse, and yet he was not broken as we are broken. Because here's the disturbing truth, I suppose, for all humanity, is that we can't just point the, wo- point the finger at the world out there and say, there is darkness, there is brokenness, there is sadness and sorrow and sin. We must also point the finger at ourselves and say, there is darkness. There is brokenness. There is the bringer of sorrow and sadness and sin. The world is broken and so are we. Misery loves company, but don't we truly want someone who can come and not just sympathize with us, but do something about our problem. Someone who can come and cast away the darkness. Someone who can come and bind up that which is broken. Our world and ourselves. Matthew's gospel, Matthew's story of the birth of Jesus is presenting us with that exact thing. One who is like us and one who is utterly unlike us. Here is the one who is truly divine. Born of the Spirit. Think about Jesus' life. Has anyone ever lived in such a way? The righteousness, the kindness, the goodness, the generosity, the justice, the love that is displayed in the deeds of Jesus, the speech of Jesus, the acts of Jesus, we cannot compare. When we explore the life of this one, we realize that he was, was not just in a different league 
as us, humanly speaking, but it almost seems like he was playing a different sport. The way that we respond and react to certain situations, the things that we cherish and uh, hold up, Jesus was just completely and utterly different. He was one, it says, who had come to bring mercy, one who had come to bring grace, one who had come to keep the promises of the old to renew and to restore that which was broken. And not just in how he acted, but the things that he managed to do. Jesus was one who was able to calm a storm with a word, who was able to raise the dead to life, who was able to cast away sickness. Jesus was unlike anyone who had ever come before. God with us is the translation given for that description, Emmanuel. Here is one who when we cry out, we can uh, cry out, God, where are you? Can answer, I am here with you in the midst of it, suffering as you suffered. But Jesus, here to save us from our sins, to save us from our brokenness, to save us from the darkness. Here is one who is able to say, I'm here with you, and I am here for you. So what difference should that make in our lives? Well, the author to the letter of the Hebrews thought this through. If you don't know about the letter to the Hebrews, it's written to a people who are under intense pressure for the very specific reason of trusting in Jesus, of hoping in Jesus, of following Jesus. To be someone who looked to Jesus as their hope, as their Messiah, as their Savior was placing them in harm's way. And the temptation for them was to shrink back. The temptation for them was to step back from the light that Jesus had brought back into their old lives of darkness, where things may not have been as hopeful as they had first seemed when they come to Christ, but certainly they now seemed easier. If I turn away from Jesus, then all of these pressures, all of these problems might melt away. And the author to the Hebrews Uh, considered all of this and encouraged them in this way. Since we have this sort of rescuer, this sort of Messiah, this sort of Christ, he says, since we have this sort of high priest, one who is able to empathize and sympathize with us in our weakness, in our fragility, in our need to depend on other people, and yet is not broken, is not with sin, is not a bringer of darkness himself. Since we have that kind of rescuer, what should we do? He says this, do not shrink back, do not run away, but instead draw near. See, here's what happens when we cry out, God, where are you? Most of the time, we don't want to hear an answer, do we? I know when I speak to people and the problem of suffering seems to be that obstacle, that barrier that they have to faith. How can I believe in a good and loving and kind God when there's suffering in the world? The point is that 
crying out is a, is a drawing back, a shrinking back, a running away from God. The coming of Jesus, the eternal Son in flesh for our sake, for our rescue, for our redemption, for our renewal, is supposed to be able to help us instead of drawing back when we ask that question, instead draw near. Since we have this sort of Messiah who is able to understand what it is we are going through, yet has not fallen, is not broken, draw near. As we contemplate, as we celebrate, as we sing about, as we share the story of the eternal one, the powerful one, the creator and upholder of all things made small, made nothing, made helpless, made a curse in our place. We're supposed to be able to draw near to God in our times of difficulty. God, where are you? And to hear his voice. I am with you and I am for you. To draw near, the author says, to his throne of grace, confidently to receive mercy and grace to help us. Brothers and sisters, when we realise just how broken our world is, when tragedies strike and we cannot pretend anymore that everything is jolly and merry and bright, when we realise ourselves that we are not jolly and merry and bright, when we cry out, God, where are you? Jesus invites us to draw near and find grace. Let me just offer to you three ways that we can draw near. And they are not novel. They are not new. They are not exciting. They are tried and tested. And they are God-given ways to draw near. We can draw near by not staying away from his word. I don't know about you, but when you are feeling low, when you are feeling sorrowful for your own state, when you are sad about the suffering in your own lives or the lives of those you care about, reading your Bible can be hard, can't it? But we're encouraged to come and to have our daily bread. What good is food that you ate a week ago for nourishing your body? The reality is that it will in some way still have formed a part of who you are, but sooner or later you will begin to shrink, you will begin to shrivel up, you will become weaker. We're told to come and to feast on God's worth. We can, we can draw near confidently, no matter what we're going through, to meet Jesus and to find grace in his word. When times are tough, do not be shy to come to your Bibles. The other thing, of course, that we struggle to do when we're suffering or when we're sorrowful over sin in our own lives is to pray. We find it difficult to pray, perhaps because we're ashamed, perhaps because we're embarrassed, perhaps because we're worried about God judging us. We're encouraged to come. No matter, no matter what our burdens are and to bring them to Jesus in order to find rest. Another thing that we struggle to do, and as a pastor I've had this sorrowful conversation so many times with people, 
as we struggle to gather with God's people, don't we? Folks have said to me, I, I don't feel up to coming to church at the moment. And yet we're encouraged not to neglect gathering together. Not to neglect God's people. We can draw near to God when we draw near with one another. We read the Bible, we pray, and we get together with God's people. I said they're not novel, they're not particularly exciting, but they are tried and tested and they are God-ordained. Christ has come in such a fashion so that we can come and receive grace. So let us not abandon him and let us not abandon the means that he has given us in order to flourish instead of flounder in our broken world.